Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bright, and there's Jerry over there. And we make up the Stuff You Should Know family. <laughs> the peace-loving, acid-loving, non-murdering, non-murdering <laughs> nice family. Did I say acid loving in there? <laughs> you did. Oh. That's weird. It's meant peace loving, non murdering family. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, hopefully there are no kids listening to this one anyway. So we can uh, let everyone else know that we take LSD before every episode. Sure. <laughs> I mean, the slogan of our show is wowie zowie. <laughs> yeah, so COA, for those of you who did not see the title, uh, if you're listening to your kids about the Manson family murders, Without a COA, then you need a, a parenting COA. Yeah, for real. But uh, there are lots of grisly details in this, so obviously you may want to skip this one with the on a on a family picnic, picnic. <laughs> yeah, it might kind of bring it down a couple of degrees. It might be a drag, you know. Probably so. Uh, speaking of drags, Chuck, I'll tell you who is a drag. Charles Manson. <laughs> he was. He was. So like, there's this there's this reputed legend. That Charles Manson tried out for the monkeys and was rejected, and that was ultimately why he um, ordered these these grisly murders um, of what, that we'll definitely get into. But it turns out that's absolutely false. Yeah, that, that I've heard that, and it always sounded to me like an urban legend. Well, so the thing is, it's got like all sorts of interesting facets to it, though, right? It's demonstrably false. He was in prison at the time the monkeys tryouts were held. But it kind of coincides with this larger part of Charles Manson's life that not everybody's fully aware of, which is that he wanted to be a star. He wanted to be a musical recording star. And he actually had, he made some inroads into that career. And I have read theories that it is possible that these murders were ordered as a means of venting Manson's frustration that his music career wasn't going as well as he thought it should yeah. and sending a message to some people in the music industry that he'd made contacts with to basically say, hey, I can't kill you because I need you, but I can kill other people to get you going and and get my music career off the ground. What's the holdup? Huh. Which is just like the Manson family murders on their face as they're largely understood is nuts. But if that's the real thing behind all of this that's just the depths of depravity of human depravity that people are, are capable of i bet that's not like the sole reason uh, but but you know like if you really strip reasons down like what are motivations for things like is it really you know to bring on helter skelter is it because he was a frustrated musician you know like, you can say the same thing about Hitler. Like, was there a kernel of Hitler's rejection from the art world and from people at large that drove him to to order the, the horrible things that he ordered the Nazis to do? Like, it, it makes you wonder, like, what is the motivation behind world-changing events when you break them down to a personal level? Yeah. I mean, well, Manson, uh, to be fair, was had mental illness in a lifetime of rejection, so... Right. Uh, this could all factor in for sure. Yeah. But so, I mean, you, you, you asked for this article to be written, didn't you? Was this your jam? Yeah. We, yeah. Ed, uh, the grabster, we, we can 
uh, sort of petitioned him to write articles at times, and this was mm-hmm. definitely one of them. Yeah. So did you know a lot about the Manson family murders and the family themselves and all that stuff already? Yeah. Was, yeah. So you this was this is probably still part of like the cultural zeitgeist when you were becoming like aware of the world as a kid, huh? Yeah. Like I, I definitely remember the book Helter Skelter being a huge, huge thing. Um, and I remember a time before like media was so robust when the idea of Charles Manson was just so terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. I do too. Uh, and then I got older and saw interviews and I was like, oh, he's just a little tiny redneck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it all vanished. I was like, oh my God, he's just, he's just a little redneck. Yeah. I think that's what there were two things that kids of the eighties went through as far as awakenings were concerned that the, um, Soviet people went out to murder all of us. Yeah. And that Charles Manson was not actually scary. He was just a dumb redneck behind bars. Yeah, I mean, he, what he did was horrific, to be sure. So I'm not, like, minimizing that. But as far as the person, he was this larger-than-life, scary-as-crap dude mm-hmm. to me until, you know, interviews started coming out and sit-downs with, like, Diane Sawyer. I was like, this guy's a joke. But for a little while there, he was legitimately America's worst nightmare. Because yeah. at the time, like a lot of people say, when the Manson family committed these murders and it it came out, you know, a couple months later, that some depraved acid head hippies had actually committed these gruesome crimes that had captured the nation's attention, it it, it suddenly gave the establishment who had been looking for anything to lay on to hippies to say, see, see, we told you you can't be trusted. Your whole peace, love, um, free stuff, like that doesn't work. You can't do that because this is the outcome of it. Manson was that personified. And for a lot of, uh, for that reason, a lot of people say, this guy, these murders ended the the um, summer of love and the, the era of hippies and ushered in the 70s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, timing wise, uh, it just seems very natural. And and Ed even points out, like even during the trial, that narrative was being laid down. It wasn't like years later, people look back and said this. Um, and he also I thought it was really interesting. I never really put it into context like Ed did. But um, the moon landing, the very first moon landing, that is. Mm-hmm happened two weeks uh, before the Manson family murders, and then a week after the murders was Woodstock. So that was a that was a nutty month. It really was. <laughs> you know, in America. And, and again, these murders, when they took place, they were just, no one had any idea who the Manson family was except for a handful of people out in L.A. and some cops that had run-ins with them. But they were not famous, and no one realized that the Manson family had been responsible for these murders. They were just these gruesome, unsolved murders in between the moon landing and Woodstock. Yeah. So a lot of people, let's start at the what a lot of people consider the beginning, which is the night of August 9th um, in a house at 10050 Cielo Drive, which is in Beverly Hills, up in the hills, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, kind of, I looked up like three different places how to pronounce that, and they all said Cielo except for Diane Sawyer said Cello. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, man, is Diane Sawyer wrong? No. About anything? No. Whatever she says is absolutely right. She could make turtlenecks right. <laughs> I used to love turtlenecks. Sure. They had, a, they, they had a, a real heyday for sure. You don't see them anymore. I used to wear them on Don't Be Dumb, but it was kind of a gag. 
I think I could still pull one off maybe, especially with the beard. Yeah, the beard would definitely help, you know, because you could you could turn a certain way and be like regular shirt, turtleneck, regular shirt, turtleneck, just by just by moving your head and your beard out of the way. Yeah. And of course, in the 80s, I would rock uh, the mock turtleneck regularly. Did you? I never really did. Yeah. Did you wear them with Z Cavaricis? No, 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 no. Okay. It wasn't. Uh, you didn't dress like A.C. Slater? No, it was sort of. Um, Believe it or not, there was like a post-preppy thing where the mock turtleneck was acceptable and not cheesy. Really? In, in a preppy sense. I gotcha. Because I was sort of a prep before I became a human monster. I could see that. <laughs> did you uh, Did you wear the Lacoste alligator and stuff? Nah, we couldn't afford that stuff, so I wore the knockoffs. I gotcha. Or the- if I had the Lacoste, the alligator was like... Accidentally sewn onto the collar or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had this conversation. Yeah, all that, all that good stuff. Factory seconds. Yep, that's me. Factory remnants, nice. So on this night, on August 9th, are we going with Cielo or uh, Diane Sawyer's cello? No, I don't know. Let, well, just, let's just say the, the house that Satan built. Right. <laughs> it's so not I, there anymore, by the way. No, uh, they they... Tore it down, yeah. but not before Trent Reznor went in and recorded a Nine Inch Nails album there. Because why not? Why not? Um, so at this at this house at one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive, that's not there any longer. There's a knock at the door on the night of August ninth, around midnight. So I don't know if that makes it August ninth or tenth. I couldn't get a definitive answer, <laughs> but the door was answered by a guy named Wojtek Frykowski who was known as a Polish playboy. He was friends of the director, Roman Polanski. Uh, and he was there because inside that house was Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant with their, uh, I believe, their first child. Um, I don't think they had any other children. Sharon Tate was pretty young at the time. But um, also inside was Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. And um, I think, oh, one other guy, Jay Sebring, who is a, a stylist who is known as the guy who introduced hair styling to men. So he was pretty well off and pretty well known as far as L.A. went. And they're just kind of this hip industry party crowd inside this this residence. And there was a knock at the door and this guy was there at on the other side of the door. And he had a, a mustache and he was tall, kind of a natural athlete type type from texas and he said i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's business and that was tex watson and he entered the house and this massacre of everybody inside began yeah so uh what had happened previous to that knock was uh tex watson climbed up a telephone pole uh cut the phone line and then climbed the fence with uh, a couple of other people uh one susan atkins and one patricia krenwinkel uh, all Manson family members, and we'll, we'll get into the whole family thing in a minute. Uh, and so they climbed over the fence, uh, went in. There was a, a kid, a teenager named Steve Parent, who was leaving in his car already, and he did not make it out. Um, he was shot five times. He was slashed and shot five times by Tex Watson uh, before he could get down the driveway. So one murder had already been committed on that property by the time they even got to the house. Yeah, and if any of these people, which you can definitely make the case all of them were, were in the wrong place at the wrong time, Stephen Parent was just doubly so. He was visiting the caretaker of the house, so yeah. he had nothing to do with 
the the um the Hollywood jet set people inside or the Manson family. He was just friends with somebody who was like a a, a worker at the house. And he was leaving at the time too. Yeah. He would have been friends with uh what was the guy's name from the OJ uh Oh uh uh oh man. He he would have been friends with Kato Kalen. There you go. <laughs> Which is yeah, that would have been a bad bad thing to be, I think. Talk about a mock turtleneck. <laughs> yeah, I think he has one permanently tattooed on his <laughs> on his neck. <laughs> I think so too. Uh there was also a third of Manson family member, uh Linda Kasabian, who was not in the house but she waited she essentially was the getaway driver. Right. And she'd just come into the family like a month before and apparently the reason she was out with them was because she was the only one with a valid driver's license out of that group. So Linda Kasabian sitting outside, Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and um, Susan Atkins all enter the house, and they just start killing everybody. Um, apparently Tex was the only one with a gun, but all three of them had knives. Patricia Krenwinkel found Abigail Folger reading in bed and started to kill her. Um uh, I believe Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were in the living room together, and they were both um, killed there in the living room. Um, Wojtek Frykowski made it out of the house, but he was killed in the front lawn. Abigail Folger, I think, made it out the back, and she died on the back lawn. And one of the things about this is, like, the reason the word massacre is, like, such a an apt description, like, these were these were just basically like, I don't know how old Tex was. He was a little bit older, but these are basically like 17, 18, 19 year old girls, um, who had never done anything like this before and were really not very good at it while they were doing it this first time. Um, and it was just bad for everybody. Apparently it was very brutal. There was a lot of fear and terror and a lot of pain and torment among everybody who was um, being killed in this house. It wasn't easy, clean. You wouldn't characterize it as like a hit. It was a, it was a massacre. Yeah. Abigail Folger, uh, herself was stabbed 28 times. Uh, and then Sebring and Frakowski, in addition to being stabbed, were also shot. And obviously, uh, Sharon Tate's unborn, uh, child was, you know, killed in this process as well. Yeah. Uh, and supposedly, and this is a, a direct quote apparently, I guess from the trial, um, the directive from Charles Manson. And if you don't know this, I guess we should go ahead and say Charles Manson, um, even though later on other people said that Tex Watson was more acting on his own mm-hmm. and misunderstood Manson's directive, but mm-hmm. Charles Manson ordered these killings, um, which we'll get into, but he uh, told Watson, supposedly, totally destroy everyone in that house as gruesome as you can. So uh, in addition to the to the mutilation of the bodies um, and like post-mortem stab wounds, there was uh, stuff written on the walls in their blood, like pig. And uh, well, I think pig was the only thing written on the wall at this one. Right on the front door, which is a uh, obviously was a, a reference to cops at the time. Right. And they wrote it in Sharon Tate's blood, right? So pig is on the door in blood. Um, the, the, the perpetrators got away. The Manson family got away. They made it back to, I think, the, the spawn ranch, which is one of the places they were staying. So then two nights later, Manson orders the family to go do it again. He's, he actually said that they, according to Tex and, and the rest of them, he actually said that they, they'd done it wrong. They had created 
panic and fear in these people and they needed to do it right this time but to go go out and butcher another family and he took him to a house and it was a house next door to this house that the Manson family used to party at um it was a a friend of one of Manson's uh, record producer friends and next door was just this normal unassuming com- couple who had from what i understand no interaction with the Mansons at any point in time um, it was this couple named uh, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, and they were just about as middle class, upper middle class America establishment as you could get. Yeah, he was uh, actually lived less than two miles from this house. It was in uh, the Los Feliz neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the night before, they had had a party at this dude's house who and the reason he didn't want to go back to that house is because he thought. Maybe it could be tied back to him in some way because he was there the night before. Mm-hmm. So they just randomly picked the neighbor. Uh, and there was six of the followers there, the original four from the uh, Tate house, plus Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan, I think was his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, it was it was talk about wrong place, wrong time. They were just in there enjoying their evening. And um, Manson did break – he was actually, like you said, there for this one, uh, whereas he wasn't even there for the Tate one. And he, he took part in the tying up, uh, but then he left, right. which uh, very cowardly left. And this right. whole thing just reeks of cowardice, like go do my dirty work for me. Exactly. Kind of in most of these cases. Right. So they tie up the LaBiancas. Um, they murdered them brutally again. Um they carved war in Mr. LaBianca's stomach um, with a knife. They left a, the knife sticking out of his neck. They left a fork sticking out of his stomach. Uh, it was just another really gruesome scene. And then again, in blood, they um, wrote they wrote things around the house. Like um, they wrote political – no, they wrote um, pigs again. Yeah, they wrote death to pigs. Mm-hmm. They wrote uh, – they misspelled it. They wrote helter skelter. Uh, which we'll get into. That was a, a Beatles song, uh, which factors in pretty heavily. Uh, and then they wrote Rise. And the whole notion here, and we'll cover this in detail more later too, was that Manson was trying to, uh, or at least he says he was trying to ignite a race war and have it um, appear that black people and, and maybe even black panthers had killed these white people, which would in then turn spark a race war they would all kill each other mm-hmm. and the manson and the reason i'm laughing is because it's just so ridiculously impos- implausible and th- then the manson family would be the only people left and they could rule the world yeah that was supposedly the whole thing behind helter skelter so the cops in la uh the the sheriff's department and the uh, la cops have um two different murder scenes that are obviously related but early on they didn't they didn't connect them yet it took it took a minute uh but once they did these two murders came to be known as the tate labianca murders before anyone knew who the manson family was and it was a big deal um but you have to go back even further to understand what's going on and to understand the eventual prosecution of the manson family uh to another murder and we will dive into that one after this
Okay, Chuck. So everybody knows about the the Tate-LaBianca murders, so much so that they're frequently called the Manson family murders. But it turns out that the Manson family was already involved in another previous murder um, a couple weeks before the, the Tate and LaBianca murders happened, I think in like late July of 1969, right? Yeah, I mean, there was one other murder and an attempted murder and then an not quite attempted murder also. <laughs> right. Uh, so the, the one you're talking about, I think is probably Gary Hinman mm-hmm. who, uh, he was, uh, well, why don't you go and explain how he fit into this whole thing? Okay. So Gary Hinman was a music teacher, um, who was a friend of the Manson family. I don't think he ever was considered like a Manson family member, but he was a buddy of them. Um, and he, either had a trust fund coming or there was a rumor that he he had access to a trust fund of like $20,000. And so the Manson family uh, went over to rob him. I think Bobby Beausoleil was the leader of that. Um, They went over to rob him or he had supplied the Manson family with a bunch of mescaline that they in turn sold to a motorcycle gang that was not happy that when it turned out the mescaline was bad who wanted their money back. So the Manson family had gone to go get their money back from this guy. And apparently he had said, like, I don't have any money, but here I'll sign over the title of my cars to you. Here are the keys. Um, and at this point they had him tied up. And I'm not entirely certain why, but Charles Manson, and this is widely agreed upon, I think even by Manson himself, that Manson came over to the house to basically assist in, in like getting this guy to cough up his money. Maybe that's what it was. And he took a sword and chopped off part of the guy's ear. Yeah. And depending on who you believe, uh, some say Manson actually ended up killing him. Other people say that, uh, Bobby Bosalil ended up stabbing him to death. Uh, Manson was on the scene for this one though, which was different than the other murders. And, uh, I guess it just depends on who you believe. It was, Bosalil was eventually arrested while driving that car mm-hmm. of Hinman's. Mm-hmm. So, um, Hinman's dead. Bosilil's in jail. And, uh, you have to actually go back even further to find the first, at least attempted murder by the Manson family. Um, earlier in July, on July 1st, this is just a bad jam if you really start thinking about it. Like, all these dates are so compressed. And you think about the Manson family just being in this crazy, like, murderous kill spree. And it really only went for like a month, basically. You know, four or five weeks. Um, but they did a lot of damage in that time. But the whole thing started. And you can make the case, and a lot of people do, that the whole thing, everything else that followed, actually started on July 1st when Charles Manson went to the apartment of a, um, a syndicate drug dealer, like a big time drug dealer named, um, Bernard Lotsapapa Crow, right? Yes. And, uh, the, Manson thought that he might have been a Black Panther. I don't think that was ever confirmed. I read a lot of articles kind of going back and forth. But um, regardless, Manson thought he was a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a double-crossing deal that went on, and they went over, and Manson actually shot Crow and thought he had killed him, but he did not die, and he did not go to the cops because he, you know, what do you do? Go to the cops and say, hey, I double-crossed. These weirdo rednecks, hippies. No, they double crossed the him. Deal. They double crossed him. Oh, see, I read that he double crossed them. No, and no, that's why. Uh, 
No, Tex Watson. Well, either way, he would not go to the cops. Right. Uh, in his condition. And so that's why it was never reported. But he was interviewed. Uh, the transcript is pretty interesting to listen to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and he wouldn't go to the cops because he, he would just handle it himself. And that's basically what he vowed to do. So there's this guy who Manson shot in the gut and left for dead who now wants to kill Manson and the whole family. And that Manson's convinced is a Black Panther, which suddenly makes sense as to why you would have found something like political piggies and a paw print in blood at Gary Hinman's murder scene, right? Yeah. Because this is about the time that this whole helter-skelter thing is happening, starting out. And um, the whole idea that, that there is a race war coming and that the Manson family might be able to nudge it along by framing um, the black community or black panthers for these murders of white people uh, is is the basis of this idea of what was behind the Manson family murders as far as the prosecution is concerned. Yeah, so I mentioned an, an almost um, attempted murder. Uh, jumping back forward again, the very night of the uh, – the idea of the night of the LaBianca murders was to, to have two separate murders mm-hmm. on the same night. And uh, Manson ordered a few, I think three different followers – uh, including Linda Kasabian, to murder this um, kind of little-known Lebanese actor named Saladin Nadar. And uh, Kasabian basically got there, didn't want to do this, and so intentionally knocked on the wrong door of the apartment, um, basically giving her an excuse to get out of there. So um, weirdly, Saladin uh, Nadir was never uh, – was a near victim of the Manson family. So that's mm-hmm. – uh, talk about a talk about a close call. Yeah, for real. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I looked him up. He, he basically was a famous actor by that time and then just didn't do much after that. So I wonder if that had, if that like just broke his brain or something, you know? I don't know. I think it would have done that to me. All right. So I think it's about time for another ad break. Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back after this. All right, Chuck, we're back. Should we talk about Charles Manson a little bit? Yeah, let's. So, like, well, let's recap real quick, okay? Manson has shot um, lots of Papa Crow in his stomach. Lots of Papa Crow has vowed to kill the whole Manson family. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil killed uh, Gary Hinman, tried to frame the Black Panthers by writing political piggies in blood on the wall. Bobby Beausoleil is arrested. Um, the... Manson family supposedly trying to make it look like uh, somebody besides Bobby Beausoleil might have killed Gary Hinman, um, kill the people at the Tate residence, kill the people at the LaBianca residence, write things like political piggies and rise and pig in blood on the walls there. And, and that's where we've left off so far. The Manson family hasn't been caught yet. Let's talk about Charles Manson. All right. So Manson, um, it's sort of mixed up on what you want to believe because a lot of the information about his life came from him and anyone who knows anything about Charles Manson knows that he had a, a tendency to overstate things and uh, certainly lie about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we do know is that he was uh, born in 1934 to a, to a teen mom and dad and the dad basically um, would not assume any 
paternity or responsibility right. sort of split. His name was Colonel. His actual name was Colonel. And he convinced people that he was an army colonel, <laughs> uh, even though he was not. So he was just never on the scene at all. And um, he ended up taking the name Manson from his stepfather, who, you know, his his mom married. She was an alcoholic, may have been a prostitute. She was in and out of uh, jail for most of her life and uh, or most of his young life. And it was just, you know, a truly bad scene for a young Charles Manson. Right. So he he actually um, went and lived with relatives while she was in jail for a five year stretch. She got out. They reunited. He said he, he apparently said that reuniting with her was one of the few truly joyful moments in his life. But in very short order, she basically was like, I can't take care of you. I don't really want this responsibility and handed him over to the state, which begun, which began a, um, just basically a string of institutionalization that would, that would keep going for basically, basically his whole life. Yeah. I mean, by the time he was eventually sent to federal prison, uh, I think he was 32 years old when he was released in 67. Mm-hmm. And they calculated that he had spent half of his life, uh, in and out of institutions, whether it be, uh, orphanages or, um, juvie or real deal prison and jail. Right. And that was just the first part of his life. So he was out for two years before they got him again after these murders. By the time he died in prison at age 83, uh, this past November, 2017, he had spent from my calculations, only 13 years of his life as a free man. Yeah. 13 out of 83 years outside of institutions. So he had uh, a lot of uh, the deck stacked against him. But you can also go back to, I think, March 1967 when he was released on parole um, from federal prison where he was given a choice like, hey, man, here you go. You're out. You can decide what to do with your life. Do you want to go straight? Do you want to go have a nice family? Do you want to just be a productive member of society? Or are you going to go the exact opposite direction? And as we know, in hindsight, Charlie Manson chose the exact opposite direction. Yeah, it's I don't know if he was ever officially diagnosed, um, but I did see that that doctors over the years and m- mental health uh, professionals say that he was probably schizophrenic. Uh, suffered from schizophrenia and had a paranoid delusional disorder at the very least. I hadn't heard the schizophrenia thing. Paranoid delusional disorder, I totally buy. Yeah. So, so he was he was a troubled dude. Um, of course, not excusing anything, but uh, it, it was clearly a case of um, mental illness combined with rejection and institutionalization. Um, really led to like the the man that he would eventually become. Right. So he gets out of prison, right? And he um, is basically released into San Francisco, 1967. So it's like hippiedom, the kingdom of hippiedom, where he, he shows up. And there's, you know, at the time, everybody's looking for, like, something new, something different, something that's a, an alternative to the establishment or the mainstream or anything different. And so Charles Manson says, like, oh, I can... I can totally exploit a lot of these people. Um, and the, he starts out by meeting a girl, a librarian named Mary Bruner. And he moves into her apartment. And she apparently was very fascinated with him because she had led a fairly straight-laced life. She went to college again. She was a librarian. And all of a sudden, there's this 
wild like ex-con who is preaching this kind of gospel of love and no materials. Um, and apparently before November 1968, which will explain what happened then, before that time, um, Charles Manson supposedly did pretty closely resemble an actual hippie. Like he, 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 he felt like he could take anything of yours that he wanted, but you could also take anything of his. And it, he apparently walked the, the walk when it came to stuff like that. And there are plenty of stories of him just giving up whatever, um, material possessions saying they didn't matter, um, before things really took a dark turn. So there's, if you really kind of dive in, it becomes clear how he could have amassed some of these early followers. And the first one was, was Mary Bruner. Yeah, I get the feeling that um, this probably would not have happened in any other era other than this generation when, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talked about it in our brainwashing and our cults episodes where this time it was just it was just a weird time in America and people were really, um, I don't know about prone, but at least ripe for the picking when it comes to falling into uh, situations like this and believing these what look like crackpots to us now, right. but at the time everyone was it was very anti-establishment. People were taking tons of drugs and uh, reject rejecting uh, mainstream society and embracing the counterculture, and they were just really open to all kinds of weird stuff. Right. So he again, he just kind of figured out that he could he could work this to his own means. So there's a couple of things that there's there's two basic things that you needed to know about Charles Manson from from everything I've seen. One was that his main goal was to become a recording artist, a, a very successful star of a recording artist. And two, that he could, he had a good ability to manipulate people into giving him what he wanted. Um, and mostly that, that amounted to sex and drugs. Um, and and he used that ability to get other people to do what he wanted. So, for example, when he started to amass like a, a, a substantial amount of girls in the Manson family, um, it was it was just a free love commune the whole time. So the guys who came in all of a sudden had access to these the women and in, a, in return um, for Charlie granting them access to them, they would basically do his bidding or offer him physical protection because he wasn't a, a big guy. He's kind of a shrimpy dude. Um, but there, everything from, from, if you look at it from an outsider's perspective, every relationship he had was one of extraction. He, he was taking something from everyone around him. It wasn't just a, a, a normal friendship or a normal relationship. It was, it was, uh, what can you do for me? And what can I use from you to, to get something out of other people? Yeah, and if, if you've never seen an interview with him, I encourage you to check some of them out. He does have a very um, stream of consciousness, circular, sort of talks nonstop and doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, one thing that's often said about him is that he can be mesmerizing um, with the way he does that. And I imagine... In the late 60s, if you got a head full of acid and there's this guy that has the ability to like almost rebreathe like a trumpet player and talk for minutes and minutes and hours on end, they could be kind of, you know, they would fall under this weird spell. Right. So I, I definitely don't get it because now when I watch him, I'm, again, tiny, weird redneck. 
Um, but when you, you know, when you see him doing his thing, even with like Diane Sawyer, who doesn't fall for it, by the way, she, she clearly is just like very, it, it's a great interview. She's pro and she stays very on point. Mm-hmm. Basically kind of like, you're not going to get me to like fall for your charms. Right. Uh, but, it, but it's pretty interesting. Um, so he, he's got Mary Bruner as this first girlfriend. Then he said, Hey, what do you think about a triad? Or rather, what do you think about a triad? <laughs> that's how he sounded. Yeah. And, um, Mary Bruner, from what I, I understand, wasn't super into it, but she was under his spell. So she said, sure. Uh, so squeaky from Lynette, squeaky from came into the picture and, um, they, you know, they lived as a, as a threesome that traveled together up and down the coast, uh, out there. And he just sort of started accumulating, uh, mostly women along the way to this sort of traveling party is probably how he framed it. Mm-hmm. And people were hip to it. Uh, there were men though. Um, besides Tex Watson and Bobby Busilio, those guy named, uh, Danny DiCarlo, who were kind of early men who joined up. And by all accounts, most of those men who joined up, were there because Manson was said, you know, you can have these women, you got plenty of drugs. And so before you know it, the Manson family was born. Yeah. And they were just kind of this weirdo hippie group that um, used to commit burglaries. Manson, there has long been, um, it's long been said that he uh, beat a lot of the women in the group and would prostitute them to for cash to pay for things for the family, like rent. Um they they ate a lot of their food from like going through dumpsters behind grocery stores and stuff like that. And they just basically hung out and did drugs and had sex all day. That was basically their aim and their goal. And then at night they would have bonfires out in the desert and um, they'd all just take a bunch of acid and listen to Charles Manson do his mesmerizing thing. Um, and again, at first it was, it was weird. There was a lot of like ideas that Manson was this reincarnation of Jesus Christ or that he was not even the reincarnated Jesus Christ. He was the same Jesus Christ who'd been alive for, you know, almost 2000 years. <laughs> um, and just like all the stuff you would find in the desert among hippies in the late sixties on acid at night around a bonfire. Right. But when, when, um, by this time, like by the time they're out in the desert, Manson had had this really amazing chance encounter that you just would never have. And the fact that it did happen is just totally mind blowing. But to become a recording artist to help ensure his success of becoming a recording artist, he moved the family from San Francisco down to Los Angeles to be closer to the center of the recording industry. And it just so happened that one night in 1968, um, a couple of Manson family girls were hitchhiking on Sunset Boulevard and were picked up by none other than Dennis Wilson, one of the co-founders of the Beach Boys. That's right. It was 69, but same, same deal. All those years just ran together back then. <laughs> right. Uh, and Dennis Wilson was, um, he was a party, party dude and, uh, liked his ladies, uh, cause it sounds very weird to say that he picked up a couple of hitchhikers and basically brought them home. But, um, it was a different time. And, uh, he, like I said, he was a party dude. So they ended up being, uh, Ella Jo Bailey and the aforementioned Patricia Krenwinkel. Mm-hmm. So they move in. Basically, and he goes to the studio, comes home, and the Manson family had moved in, <laughs> which, again, it sounds really strange. But at the time, he, I mean, Ed says he was frightened. At th- 
I get the feeling he was more like, you know, what trip are you on? Not like, oh my God, I need to call the cops. Yeah, he, um, I Cause they he, lived there for a while. Like he let them live there. Yeah. I think the part, it was partially out of fear. I saw an, or I read an interview with Charles Manson where he was talking about Dennis Wilson and he was like, you know, I'd say whatever. He just lay his weirdo trip on Dennis Wilson and Dennis's response would be like, yeah, man, that's cool. Let's, look, I got to go. I really got to go do this thing. Just always trying to get away from Charles Manson. So maybe he was afraid that he was, they were going to kill him. Maybe he liked having access to like all this free love from all the, the Manson family women. Um, or maybe he just felt like he couldn't get out of it, but he, uh, he did let them live there for a few months. It wasn't like they crashed there for a weekend. They moved in. They wrecked his Ferrari. Yeah. Um, they, they met a bunch of his friends. It was, it was a big, it was a big deal that, that Dennis Wilson came into Charles Manson's life because it really bolstered this idea that yes, he is going to become a recording artist. Cause not only did he hang out with Dennis Wilson, he hung out with a guy named Terry Melcher, who was a record producer, hung out with another guy named Phil Kaufman, who was a record producer. And he met all these people in the industry who were in a position to get Charles Manson's career off of the ground. And when, when there's, you're dealing with this, this crazy little ticking time bomb like Charles Manson, who wants you to do something like get his music career off the ground, but you don't think his music is good enough to actually launch. Um, you've got a problem on your hands. And Dennis Wilson and his buddies all knew this. Yes. And uh, two quick things here. Uh, one, big shout out to Dennis Wilson's only solo album, Pacific Ocean Blue. Is it good? I think it's great. I got to check that out. And I love the Beach Boys. I mean, he Dennis Wilson was, was clearly not the... Uh, uh, the brains or voice behind the Beach Boys mm-hmm. as the drummer, but uh, and he was always sort of, um, I think, kind of picked on a little bit for not being the most talented dude, and he was just in the band because he was handsome and related. But um, I think Pacific Ocean Blue is like one of the the great lost classics. I'll check it uh, out. It's very good. He was supposedly also the only true surfer in the band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was that Terry Melcher, that producer that you mentioned, the reason he uh, factors in so heavily is because he actually lived at the the Tate house in uh, Beverly Hills before Tate and them moved in. Yeah. So that was sort of the connection there. Um, I guess Manson was going to kill him, right? No. No? So here is what a lot of people think. They think that, again – he was sending a message to Terry Melcher saying, I can't kill you, but I can get close to you. And I know you're going to hear about this because this happened at the house you were living in a month or so before. I'm just going to go in and have my people indiscriminately slaughter whoever's there. But this is this is you. This is what's going on. He he supposedly was well aware that Terry Melcher didn't live there any longer because he'd spoken to the guy who actually owned the house and was asking him where Terry Melcher went. And all the guy would tell him was Malibu. So he knew it wasn't Melcher in that house anymore. Gotcha. All right. So they eventually leave uh, Dennis Wilson's house. Dennis Wilson's like, you guys are great and all. The, the ladies are nice. The acid is decent. But it's time for you to go. So they, lift, uh, they leave uh, in 1968 still. And um, he uh, they they go to Spawn Ranch, which you mentioned earlier, S P A H N, and this was a it was kind of weird that they ended up living here, but it was it was out in kind of the outskirts of L A. There are lots of uh, ranches like the Disney Ranch or the Universal Ranch, mm-hmm. where they shoot a lot of stuff, and they have old sets that are still there, whether it's uh, 
MASH or Planet of the Apes or um, just an Old West set. And Spawn Ranch was one of these that had closed down. And it was an Old West set. And they actually um, – it's a state park now, but they did have permission to live there. They didn't just uh, squat there. They uh, sort of had a little agreement to do a little maintenance work, uh, and they were allowed to stay. So some of them are there. Some of them are at places like at a camp in Death Valley and then just scattered all over L.A. as far as Manson family members and just random houses and apartments. Right. But the main uh, place that, that Manson and the, the inner circle wa- was at Spawn Ranch, and they would, they would go on what they called creepy crawls, which were these little crime sprees. Where, like you said, they would go out and burgle cars or, or rob people and um, just to kind of keep the money and the drugs flowing. Right. Um, and – so Spawn Ranch was almost like a little more legit. They were in much closer contact with other people out in Death Valley at the Barker Ranch. That was far more secluded, way out in the desert, way more disconnected from society. And that was the place where they expected to wait out helter-skelter while the the um, everybody else in the country killed one another. That's right. So – um You've got this whole, this whole weirdo family. They're, they're criminals. They're engaged in prostitution. There's violence, you know, there's physical violence, but ultimately they're, they kind of resemble hippies here or there. Super counterculture. Um, but things turn dark and they turn dark after this seminal thing that happened to the rest of the world, but really, really spoke to Charles Manson in particular. And that was the November 22nd, 1968 release of the Beatles' White Album. All right. You know what? This is going to be a two-parter. It's pretty clear. Uh, so let's go ahead and end this one on a cliffhanger featuring the Beatles. Right. Does that sound good? It, yeah, it does. So um, we'll pick back up part two with the White Album? Let's do it. All right. All right. Well, in the meantime, while you guys are chewing over what Chuck just said, uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 